Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 32. You know, there's a question going back many years, and I think it was originally brought about by skeptics or atheists or unbelievers, and that question is, and I'm going to probably rock some minds here today, can God create a rock so heavy that he can't lift it? Remember that question? Could God create, if God is omnipotent, if God is all-powerful, can he create a rock so heavy that he can't lift it? So it goes along with the question asked in Jeremiah, is anything too hard for God? That question about the rock, I got a little explanation of because it's kind of can make you think a little bit. In, uh, on the website gotquestions.org, it's a pretty decent website if you have any questions about biblical things they seem to be pretty fair along the road but uh, this one here says this question is frequently asked by skeptics of God the Bible Christianity etc if God can create a rock that he cannot lift then God is not omnipotent according to this argument omnipotence is self-contradictory therefore God cannot be omnipotent so the question, could God create a rock so heavy he could not lift it? The quick answer to that would be no. But the explanation is far more important to understand than the answer. The question is based on a popular misunderstanding about definitions of words like almighty or omnipotent. These terms do not mean that God can do anything. Rather, they describe the amount of God's power. Power is the ability to effect change, to make something happen. God, being unlimited, has unlimited power, and the Bible affirms this in many passages. Therefore, God can do, this is, this is important here, God can do whatever is possible to be done. But God cannot do that which is actually impossible. This is because true impossibility is not based on the amount of power someone has, but it's based on what's really possible. So the first part of that question is based on a false idea that God being almighty means he can do anything. In fact, the Bible has itself lists that, of things that God cannot do. He can't lie. He can't deny himself. And the reason he can't do these things is because it's outside of his nature. It's out of his character. And it's actually outside of the realm of nature itself. So those things are impossible for God to do. Today we're going to look at a very important and timely passage in the book of Jeremiah. Important because it shows us the humanity of a man who was used greatly by God, but who still had his failings and weaknesses. And timely because, listen, at, at one time or another, and maybe right now, we all go through feelings of doubt, of sorrow, and maybe even despair as believers. We'll experience troubles and trials and sicknesses and tests in this life. And it's helpful for us to be encouraged, isn't it, when we go through these things, when we go through these inevitable trials that will come into our life. When, when things seem impossible for us, we need to remember that nothing is impossible for God. God will always find a way to strengthen us in preparation for trials or difficulties in order that he will take us through them. As believers, he promises that we will experience trials. But we should not be destroyed by them. One of my favorite passages in the book of John 
in the Gospel of John 16.33 says, These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, Jesus says. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Praise the Lord for that. In Jeremiah 32, we meet the prophet at one of the lowest times of his life. One of the lowest points in his ministry. You know, he was faithful for over 40 years to preach the message that God had given to him. But we have no record of anyone actually receiving that message. As a matter of fact, we meet Jeremiah in the chapter we're going to go through today in prison for the very fact that he was preaching that message. And some people even wanted to kill him. Why? Because he spoke the truth and people didn't want to hear it. You know, we see that today in our culture too. That people who speak the truth of the Bible are shut down and shut out and rejected. Well, his message was one of judgment. It was judgment on the nation, judgment on the people for their continued disobedience to the Lord. And his mission was the last opportunity that God gave to Judah to turn from their sin and escape the coming judgment. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet because he saw the condition of the people and their unrepentant sin and he would weep over it. Jesus tells us in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 that if we mourn over sin, if we weep over sin, in other words, if we see sin the way God sees sin, that He will bless us and He will comfort us. It says in Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is mourning over the sinful state of the world. This is mourning over your own sin. This is actually in agreement with God. And why wouldn't He bless us if we're in agreement with Him? Jeremiah's tears were not only because he knew that God's judgment was going to come, but because the people wouldn't listen to him. No matter how hard he tried to get them to heed God's warnings. Just as a side note, as we meet people in, uh, throughout our life, you know, and we try to get them to see God's love and His grace and His mercy, and if they continually reject that message, do we feel the same way? Do we mourn for them? Do we weep for them? And maybe we have people in our life right now that we've been trying to tell about this wonderful, beautiful love story of Jesus coming to earth for their sin and they reject it. And maybe people have become hardened toward God because of His long-suffering. Now, as strange as that might sound, you know, maybe they are hardening their hearts because they don't see his judgment. Maybe they see the things that are going on in the world and they wonder if God will ever really judge sin. We're going to see also in this chapter that God is fair in all of his ways. And on a personal note, I'm thankful he didn't judge me before I came to faith in him. He gave me an opportunity as he has many of you to repent because of his patience, because of his long-suffering, because of his love. And I'm grateful for that. So as we jump in here, we're going to read through the first 15, chap 15 verses in Jeremiah 32. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, for then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king of Judah's house. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape from the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon and shall speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye. Then he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon and there he shall be until I visit him, says the Lord. Though you fight with the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. 
And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you, saying, Buy my field, which is in Anatoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came, into, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, Please buy my field that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is yours, and the redemption yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle, who was in Anatoth, and weighed out to him the money, 17 shekels of silver, and I signed the deed and sealed it, took witnesses and weighed the money on the scales. So I took the purchase deed, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom, and that which was open, and I gave the purchase deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, son of Messiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison. Then I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this purchase deed, which is sealed, and the deed which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel, that they may last many days. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in the land. So we kind of are brought into this real estate transaction that occurred here in the prison of the court of the king of Judah. And Jeremiah was the main character in this, in this transaction because the Lord had asked him to do this. You know, just an overview of the situation. The situation in the nation of Judah at that time was really very bad. Much of it was due to the wickedness of the very leaders over the nation. Zedekiah, who was the king at that time, was one of those wicked rulers. It says in Second Chronicles chapter 36, in verse 11, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. And in verse 14 it goes on and says, Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. So we see here, the account of Zedekiah the king, he, was, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And notice how God measures good and evil. He doesn't measure it sometimes how we measure it by comparing ourselves to others. It's not about doing good works. It's not about belonging to a particular denomination. It's about following the Lord. It's, being, it's about being obedient to God and being concerned about how God sees us. Not necessarily how others see us. See, we're either doing evil in the sight of the Lord or we're doing what's right in the sight of the Lord. Either way, He knows and He sees. And that's really what's most important. And look also how the king had influence not only over the nation and the people, but about the, over the religious leaders too. How that can sort of trickle down from leadership in a country that even the religious leaders would become corrupted. We see that today, too. And we've kind of gotten used to it, haven't we? That, you know, we don't think it's strange anymore for just the normal person to reject God, to reject the message of salvation. We see it as kind of commonplace. We're not surprised when we witness to people and they don't want to hear it. We're not surprised when we bring them the message of the gospel and they reject us. But haven't you even run into so-called religious people who even reject the truth of the Bible? We see that more and more. And I think in the political and social climate that we are in, in this country especially, it's become more and more difficult to stand up for righteousness. 
especially when we have in front of us well-known religious leaders who are going against the teachings of the Bible in order to stay relevant, in order to stay popular. It's a constant battle, isn't it, for believers to live biblically in an unbiblical culture. That's why Jeremiah can be a real inspiration to us. He was living in this culture. He was living in a very hostile world, but he remained faithful to his mission. And we can do the same thing. Look at the reason Jeremiah found himself in prison in verse 3. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord? Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape from the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye. Then he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon, where there he shall be until I visit him, says the Lord. Though you fight with the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. So Jeremiah brings this message to the king that you will be defeated. Babylon is going to come in and they're going to ransack Jerusalem. They're going to ransack the country. They're going to take you out. They're going to take the people out. There's nothing you can do about it. But the king didn't want to hear the truth. Now, how many today don't want to hear the truth of what the Bible has to say? They reject it. The king wanted yes men to tell him nice things, not the truth that their sin was going to result in judgment and that the king himself was going to be delivered into the hand of the cruel Babylonians. The king didn't want to hear it. So what did he do? He, re, he imprisoned the prophet Jeremiah for bringing him that message. You know, Jeremiah was demonstrating what a real true disciple, a true follower of God looks like. There's a book that I use quite a bit in discipleship called Spiritual Discipleship. It's by uh, Oswald Sanders. The author speaks about a lot of things characteristics of discipleship, what it looks like in a believer, and that we're called not to just be believers, but to be disciples, to be followers. And in chapter 2, he speaks about the conditions for discipleship. He goes on and says that one of the conditions to be a true follower of Christ is unceasing cross-bearing. Unceasing cross-bearing. And he uses the following verse, to support this idea in Matthew 10, 38. He says, anyone who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. So we may ask the question, what does it mean to carry our cross? Well, in the context of what Jesus was saying and in what we see Jeremiah doing, it means, are we willing to face the rejection of the world for the sake of the gospel? What did the cross mean to Jesus, Sanders writes? It was something he took up voluntarily, not something that was imposed on him. It involved sacrifice and suffering. It was symbolic of rejection by the world. If the disciple is unwilling to fulfill this condition, Jesus said, he cannot be my disciple. So the question for us, the application for us, is are we willing to suffer the rejection of the world? That's antagonistic toward the truth of the Bible. Jeremiah endured the rejection from the world because he knew that the message was given by God and it was the truth. He didn't always like it. Sometimes he even doubted. Sometimes he questioned the Lord, but he was faithful. That's what I love about Jeremiah. He was faithful to complete the mission. And then moving on, as we kind of unpack these, these few verses here, check out the un unusual request that the Lord makes of Jeremiah. We spoke about this real estate transaction, right? So in verse 6, it says, Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you, saying, Buy my field which is in Anatoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison 
according to the word of the Lord and said to me, Please buy my field that is in Anatoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is yours and the redemption yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So again, we look at the scene here. The land of Judah is about to be completely taken over by Babylon. It's basically a war-torn country with no hope of survival. And God is commanding Jeremiah to do something really seemingly irrational. Imagine a relative of yours comes to you and asks you to invest your money in a piece of property. Your relative has the right to purchase it, and he would buy it except for one thing. He doesn't have the money. Sounds like maybe a lot of our relatives, right? He says the property would be worth a, a lot more than the asking price, but there's only one catch. It's in Syria. And ISIS is infiltrating the borders, about to be overtaken. So knowing that the property would surely wind up in the hands of your enemy and you'd have no chance of occupying it, would you buy it? What if God commanded you to buy it? Would that make a difference? Well, this is basically where we find Jeremiah. Not only did God command him to preach a very difficult message for over 40 years, now he asks him to spend his money on a piece of property already under enemy control with no hope of recovering his investment. And notice what Jeremiah says at the end of verse 8. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. How did he know <laughs> that this was the word of the Lord? Well, I don't, I don't see the real answer here but this is just conjecture on my part. What might have convinced Jeremiah that this was the word of the Lord, that the, that the Lord was asking him to do this very unusual, very strange thing, was the fact that it was so illogical. Do you ever find yourself in a place where the Lord's asking you to do something, you're really sure that it's God, and it makes absolutely no sense? I've been there. I know for me, I try to figure out God a lot in my limited mind when He has told me something that's beyond my ability to understand it. I want to figure it out. But what does it say in Isaiah 55? It says, For the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's ways are higher than our finding out. Many times, the mere fact that something sounds so illogical, and this doesn't go across the board, but it, it, that may be pointing to the fact that this is God. It doesn't sound right. It sounds impossible. It sounds illogical. But then Jeremiah knew it was the word of the Lord. Verse 16, Now when I delivered the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, so here's the order of events for Jeremiah. First he obeys the Lord, then he commits it to prayer. Now, this was a very strange command. This was very confusing to Jeremiah. And he was in a really low place. Remember, he was imprisoned for doing the Lord's work. He was doubting God. So this one went against all of the logic of all of the years of, of his preaching. And it says, then he prayed. You know, sometimes we question the Lord, don't we, before we pray? Before we pray. Sometimes we want clarity. Sometimes we want complete understanding from the Lord before we step out in faith. I can understand that. I, I get what, what's going on here. But Jeremiah here shows us really a beautiful way to respond to the Lord. Step out in faith. Be obedient. He'll give you clarity. But be obedient to the Lord. Obey first, then pray for God to show him. So we're going to dig into Jeremiah's prayer here. 
So in verse 17, it says, Ah, Lord God. Remember, he just gave him this very strange command to do this very unusual real estate transaction. And he goes on, he says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. So you see, it came to Jeremiah that this just seemed impossible. There's just no way that this is going to work out. And then as he prayed, he saw the Lord. Jeremiah was in great despair for the people who would not turn from their worldliness toward God. And he knew God was going to have to judge them. And he was at a point really of near hopelessness because of it. And on top of that, he's in prison. He's calling out to the Lord in prayer. By all accounts, by human understanding, his mission was a failure. And that's precisely where God speaks to him and gives him encouragement. In verse 17, we see Jeremiah beginning this prayer by recognizing God's character. Remember at the beginning we spoke about God's omnipotence. He can do nothing outside of his character. He can do nothing outside of his nature. So Jeremiah starts to see God's character, starts to see God's nature. And in our lowest moments, we should never lose sight of God's power, of God's majesty. Sometimes we may feel like God has abandoned us or he's unable to solve our problems. But we can't measure God by our circumstances. We need to remember who he is and that despite our circumstances, he doesn't change. Amen? The first thing Jeremiah prayed was to focus on his ability to do anything. I like how he begins with total faith. Total faith in God. So we hold fast to that promise that nothing is too hard for God. Certainly since he created the universe by his power, he would be able to bring Jeremiah through this very difficult time. Because the world is so unstable for us, we need to put our trust in something that is faithful, something that never changes. And the work of creation shows us God's power and majesty. Look what it says in Psalm 8. To the chief musician on the instrument of Gath, a psalm of David, O Lord our God, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies. You have made silence the enemy and the, and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? David marvels here at the work of God's creation, the majesty of it. But he also marvels at something that is kind of close to home for us. He marvels at the intimacy of God and that relationship that he desires with us. The beautiful thing about those verses in that psalm is that connection between the magnificence of God, the magnificence of his power in creation, and the simplicity of that desire for that relationship with us and his desire to connect to us. Jeremiah goes on in his prayer and he kind of gives us a picture of this relationship in verse 18. You show loving kindness to thousands and repay the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God whose name is the Lord of hosts. So he goes on and sees this now. First he mentions the beauty and the magnificence of creation, the power of God to create everything in this universe. And then he sees this multi-layered, sort of complex nature of God as he shows loving kindness or mercy to those who believe in him. But he also is faithful to punish those who turn away from him to do evil. And this gave Jeremiah great hope. In the midst of a society that was tumbling down into total depravity, Jeremiah needed to see that God would be impartial and just. When we look around the world and we see evil, 
we see wickedness, we can rest in the fact that God will always be fair, always be just. And Jeremiah strengthened himself to face his doubt, to face his despair. He strengthened himself in the power of God. It's like what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses. This sounds like Jeremiah. Paul experienced the same thing. He says, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Amen. In our weakness, God's strength will be manifest in our life. He goes on in verse 19, you are great in counsel and mighty in work. This is continuing in Jeremiah's prayer to the Lord. Your eyes are open to all the ways of the Son of Men to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Nothing gets past God. Nothing. And that can be very reassuring to us. Jeremiah is acknowledging that in God, everyone will get what they deserve. If we trust in the Lord for salvation, He'll give us everlasting life. If we reject that provision, we will be condemned to everlasting separation from the Lord. Remember, people make the choice. God never sends anyone to hell. He only confirms our choices. We're called by God to seek after Him and our free will will then make that choice for or against him. He'll never force someone. He'll never interrupt our free will. Jeremiah goes on in verses 20 to 22. You have set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt to this day, in Israel and among other men. You have made yourself a name as it is this day. You have brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror. You have given them this land of which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now Jeremiah continues to just express all of the things, all of the promises that God promised to the nation, that he fulfilled every one of them. He didn't hold back anything. He continues to magnify the name of the Lord because of his faithfulness and provision. You know, the Israelites always looked to God's provision and protection in the wilderness as proof of his love and faithfulness. We can look back at God's hand upon our lives in various stages of our life, and it should give us reassurance and comfort that he's with us. We can look at his past dealings with us and see his hand upholding us or healing us or protecting us. And we know that the next trial, the next difficulty, God will be able to take us through. And notice, God's faithfulness was demonstrated in the nation's life, in the Israelites' life, in the wilderness. Notice he didn't remove them from the wilderness but he was with them all the way through, as he will be for us. Moving on in verse 23 through 25. And they came in and took possession of it. So this is the people. This is going on about the promise of God to give them the land. And they came in and took possession of it. But they have not obeyed your voice or walked in your law. They have done nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have caused all this calamity to come upon them. Look, the siege mounds. They have come to the city to take it. And the city has been given into the hands of the Chaldeans who fight against it because of the sword and famine and pestilence. What you have spoken has happened. There you see it. And you have said to me, O Lord God, buy the field for money and take witnesses. Yet the city had been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. There isn't a question mark there in your Bible, but maybe there should be. He says, and you've said to me, O Lord God, buy the field for money and take witnesses. Perform this transaction to buy this property in a place that I know 
is already given over into the hand of the enemy? See, this is this prayer. It's very interesting. We get to see kind of the heart of the prophet Jeremiah here. His obedience to the Lord, we, it's unquestionable. He obeyed. But then we start to see, even through this prayer, kind of the, as he's starting to doubt, as his faith is kind of starting to wither here. If God continually told him about his judgment on the nation, and total devastation of the land, then why would he have Jeremiah buy a piece of property in Judah? Sometimes God will direct us in a certain way, won't he? But we won't understand why. By all accounts, it looks like as he's directing us, this will not work out. This is going to be a disaster. Or we don't get what God's showing us. You know, maybe he's calling us to, to move to a different area. Maybe he's just speaking to us to talk to that person at the checkout line or talk to that waiter or waitress in the restaurant about me. For Jeremiah, this real estate transaction that God was asking him to do brought him to a crisis point in his faith. Think about the things you have felt God was leading you toward, yet how many times it looked like God did not know what he was doing. But, look, but what does God say? In verse 26 and 27, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Jeremiah, trust me. Look at God's faithfulness and comfort in reassuring Jeremiah. He's saying, Jeremiah, I know you don't get it. I know you don't understand what I'm doing here, but you need to trust me in this. Is anything too hard for me? I love the fact that the characters that we meet in the Bible are just like you and I. They doubt and they question. They grow tired and maybe even depressed. And they wonder how God could possibly pull off what he's telling them to do. But we can take comfort in knowing that God is in charge even when things look like they're out of control. And we see two promises he gives Jeremiah here as we continue on. The first one is in verses 28 through 44. Look at this. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And the Chaldeans who fight against this city shall come and set fire to this city and burn it with the houses on whose roofs they have offered incense to Baal and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger because the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done only evil before me from their youth. For the children of Israel have provoked me only to anger with the work of their hands, says the Lord. For this city has been given to me, a provocation of my anger and my fury from the day that they built it, even to this day. So I will remove it from before my face because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger. They, their kings, their princes, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they have turned to me the back and not the face. They've turned their back on God. Though I taught them rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not listened to receive instruction. But they have set their abominations in the house, which is called by my name, to defile it. In the very house of the Lord, they were offering sacrifices to idols. And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and daughters to pass through the fire of Molech, child sacrifices to their pagan gods, which I did not command them, nor did it come into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city, which you, of which you say, it shall be delivered into the hand of the uh, king of Babylon by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. 
First promise of God. He will judge sin. He will judge sin. In this picture we see here, Babylon will overtake the city. The people will be taken into captivity. The city will be burned. All of those things he's telling Jeremiah that you've preached for 40 years will definitely come to pass. My word will come true. But look at the other promise. Remember I said he gave two promises. Look at this other promise in the next verses, 37 through 41. He says, Behold, I will gather them out of all the countries where I have driven them in my anger, in my fury, and in great wrath, and I will bring them back to this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after me. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing, from doing them good, but I will p- put my fear into their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will assuredly plant them in the land with all my heart and with all my soul. Wow, what a promise. It sounds like there's no way that these two sections, that these two promises could be back-to-back in the same chapter of the Bible. The second promise that God gives after promising that He will judge sin is that He will cause the people to come back into the land, to repopulate the land. But we've got to pay attention here. And as, we, as I try to close this up, we have to pay attention here because there's something much deeper to this real estate transaction than meets the eye. So in, in order to see the full impact of both promises and the personal application to our lives these many thousands of years later, we need to understand the law of Israel at that time. There was a certain law called the law of redemption. And because every portion of Scripture has an interpretation that needs to be based on the context, we, it brings us to a better understanding of what God's telling us. And it brings us more meaning and application to our lives. At that time, when a piece of property was surrendered or, slow, or sold the original owner retained what was called the right of redemption. The right of redemption. That means that when the property was forfeited, the original owner could purchase it back if he was able to fulfill certain requirements under the law. But there was another aspect to this law. That is, if the original owner was personally unable to redeem the property, a close relative could do it on their behalf. That's what we see here in this story. Remember, Jeremiah's cousin came to him and said, will you buy my property? Because I have the legal right to it, but I don't have the means to do it. And even though Jeremiah was in prison, I'm I'm assuming that his cousin knew that he had the means, he had the financial ability to purchase that property. We look at the world around us and we may think, how did it get so messed up? This is not what God intended. When he created the earth, it was all good. As a matter of fact, six times in chapter 1 of Genesis, it is written, and God saw that it was good. God's original intention for the earth was supposed to be this perfect environment. And then we see the account of the creation of man. And it gets even better. Look with me at this account in Genesis 1. In verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw that, every, saw that everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and morning with the sixth day. After God created Adam and Eve, he said everything was very good. Why is that? See, there was something special about man. There was something special, something different than all of the rest of creation. It was because we were supposed to have this beautiful fellowship, this perfect relationship with the Lord and enjoy the creation that he made. But what happened? We know sin entered in, right? And ruined everything. Basically, Adam and Eve submitted to Satan in the garden and they surrendered control of the earth. In other words, they forfeited that property that God had given to them. We know it's true. We look around us and we don't see the world that God created. We see a world filled with suffering and sin, with poverty and sadness. We see people hating one another and being divided upon, uh, over all different ways, racial, ethnic, gender, and other lines. God intended man to live in harmony with one another and in fellowship with him. Just like the nation of Judah who forfeited the right to the land because of their disobedience and rebellion, all of creation has done the same thing. But just like in that right of redemption, in that law, God created a plan to redeem the world back. See, as the original owners, so to speak, of this world, we don't have the ability to redeem it back. We have the right, but we don't have the ability. See, we're spiritually poor. We can't at all redeem this world back on our own. We need a close relative, don't we? We need a kinsman. We need Jesus to purchase the world back for God's original purpose. John 3.16, you all know this verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. See, that's the plan that God had from, from the beginning. You know, when we look at the Old Testament, we can see it, how it applies to God's plan for mankind all the way through. Even in these things, the, like the laws in the nation and all of that, Jesus became one of us in order to be our close relative, in order to redeem us back for God's original purpose. In, in the book of Revelation, as, as I close up here, and I think it's great because we sang about this today in our worship. In the book of Revelation, the Apostle John sees a vision of this redemption of mankind played out. Jeremiah has this title deed, this scroll that God told him to buy. John sees this scroll or the title deed to the earth and he sees no one worthy to redeem it until he's told there is one. There is one. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. And look, look with me in Revelation 5. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, 
sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? And no one in heaven or in earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And then I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though he had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of, his right hand, out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We pray, we pray for Jesus to return to redeem this world but we know God has that plan already in place, don't we? They sang a new song, it goes on in verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We look at the world, we look at our own lives, and we know that we've fallen far from God's original intent for us if we're really honest. And it seems hard. It seems impossible. How could, how could we get redeemed back? How could we redeem ourselves? We can't. It is impossible. But what's impossible for us is supremely possible for the one who can do all things leave this verse with you. We already read it before. Jeremiah 32, 27. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you. Let's